Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. Rakuten's Big Give Week is back with 15% cash back. It's a festival of savings at hundreds of stores, including Doc Martens, Ninja Kitchen, and Hotels.com. Prep for summer and save big on beauty, travel, electronics, and more. It's one of Rakuten's biggest cash back events, and it's on May 6th through May 13th. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app today. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Hey, everybody. Great one today. And I can say that with confidence because this is a repeat. We here on the Al Franken podcast are taking a well-deserved break this week. And by us, I mean me and Peter. because It's just the two of us. And by this week, I mean the week of Thanksgiving. We don't do repeats all that much. We are contracted to do 44 of these a year, leaving room for eight repeats. So if just 18% of our shows are any good at all, we feel like we can guarantee a quality repeat. And this is, quite honestly, a great one. Jeremy Peters is on about nine months ago with his book, Insurgency, How Republicans Lost Their Party and Gained Everything They Ever Wanted. And it's, it's all about how the Republican Party has gone totally batshit crazy, but how that batshit crazy part of the party has always been there. And you can go back to your Pat Buchanan, who at the 92 Republican Convention said, and I quote, there is a religious war going on in this country. And you got your Newt Gingrich, who taught his Republican members how to speak like Newt, using what were called contrasting words to apply to your opponent, words like sick, pathetic, radical, anti-flag, anti-family, anti-child, anti-jobs, corrupt, and traitor. You got your Rush Limbaugh, of course, your Roger Ailes. Peters treats us to some Sarah Palin highlights and then brings us crashing into the Trump years with your Steve Bannons and your Stephen Millers, your Marjorie Taylor Greens and Alex Joneses, just the whole lot of them. And of course, Trump. And all that gives us your fake news, alternative facts, cruelty, the big lie, and Dobbs. And while we think that on November 8th, the American people said, stop it, these crazies are not going to stop. And we are almost certainly looking forward to a shit show over the next two years in the House of Representatives. Well, Jeremy Peters is ahead to tell you how we got here. It is a great one. You know, for a change. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example, let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. 
That means the soup. <laughs> that means that means I would also like the soup. And that way I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash franken. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash franken. Rules and restrictions may apply. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Jeremy Peters is uh, with me today. Jeremy has been a correspondent for the New York Times uh, for more than 15 years. He's also a political contributor for MSNBC. That's the Microsoft National Broadcasting Company headquartered in New York City. Is that correct, Jeremy? That, that is correct, yes. Um, I believe you used to work for one of their entities at, at, at some point, didn't you? I did. I did. It was uh, the NBC part. Yeah. Yes. yes. Um, Jeremy has a new book out, Insurgency, How Republicans Lost Their Party and Got Everything They Ever Wanted. It's about how uh, the Republican Party has become what it is today, a party that considers assaulting Capitol Police, <laughs> uh, gouging out their eyes, uh, breaking their vertebrae, spraying them with bear spray, slamming them with hockey sticks and baseball bats, uh, giving them traumatic brain injuries, considering all of that to be legitimate political discourse. Were you sorry you couldn't get that in the book? <laughs> <laughs> How friggin' amazing it is. You know, in your book, I, uh, you just have this line of assholes that you profile <laughs> and their role in all of this. And it's uh, Limbaugh, Rush Limbaugh, of course, Sean Hannity, mm -hmm. uh, Pat Buchanan, who at least could mm -hmm. be kind of fun to be with, right? I mean, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, he's not, you know, uh, Roger Ailes, um, a monster, but also kind of charming. Yep. So, I mean, sociopaths are often uh, quite charming. Then you have some uh, sort of less well-known uh, assholes. You know, the guy from uh, Operation Veritas, what's his name? Right. Yeah, James O'Keefe. James O'Keefe. Just a whole slew of these guys. Uh, you know, Alex Jones, mm -hmm. Steve Bannon, Glenn Beck. And Coulter Tucker Carlson. <laughs> <laughs> if you keep going, no one's going to want to read this book. <laughs> Newt Gingrich. Well, no, it's all uh, it's all like a trip down Nightmare Lane. Giuliani, uh, Stephen Miller gets shows mm -hmm. up. Breitbart, uh, Karl Rove, uh, Roger Stone, mm. and of course you kind of start with Sarah Palin. And what's fascinating about this is is it's just how the Republican Party just got taken over by these insurgents, and it's their party now, right? 
Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, every one of those people you name through, for the most part, were kind of at the periphery of the conservative movement in the Republican Party. I mean, these were not people who were invited to speak at Mitt Romney's Republican National Convention. And they were dismissed and they were laughed at and, and, and disrespected to a large degree by the Republican leadership. And that was a really important part of their political identity and uh, created a real galvanizing sentiment, I think, among a lot of them uh, and why they identified with Trump, because Trump is ultimately somebody who is not ideological. He's driven solely by his grievance and his desire for revenge. And it's something I get into in the chapter. I'm glad you mentioned Roger Ailes, because there's a scene which has long been like lost to the, uh, the, the into the void of canceled cable news shows. But Roger Ailes, when he was president of CNBC, gave himself a talk show and he had all sorts of. Interesting I was on that on. talk show, believe it or not. Were you really? That's amazing. Isn't it amazing? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he put, consider yourself flattered because he picked really interesting people to be on that show. And one of them was Donald Trump. Uh, you probably don't enjoy being in that company, but like in, in 1995, of course, Donald Trump was a was a, not a political figure, but he in many ways was the same type of grievance oriented character that he is now. And Roger says to him, you know, I don't get it, Donald, like these these construction workers, the road crews, they say, hey, Donald, you know, how, how are you doing? We love you. And you're this millionaire from Manhattan. How does that work? And Trump's answer is as resonant today as it was back then. He says, well, it's because the rich people, they're, they're the ones that don't like me. So what Trump was doing there is that, you know, he identified that it's it's not just about his appeal. It's about who people think hate him. And, and it's about his enemies as much as it is uh, anything in, in his own personal character that people find appealing. Oh, man, I shouldn't say I hate him then. That <laughs> <laughs> gives him fuel. It you know what's, what's interesting? I mean, basically what the, the arc of this book is how the party became the Trump party. And if you think about who the nominees and a couple presidents, a couple of Bush presidents, uh, who the nominees for the Republican Party were since, mm -hmm. uh, you know, 88, H.W., uh, then you, you profile Buchanan, who challenged H.W. Uh, in 92. Mm -hmm. But then it was Bob Dole. Mm -hmm. Then it was George uh, W. Bush. Then it was McCain. <laughs> <laughs> and then it was Romney. And those were what we used to think of, of when we thought of Republicans. Mm -hmm. And then it was Trump. And that was So what you're doing right there, and you would have no way of knowing this, but you're actually spelling out the idea that formed my book proposal. I was having lunch with a well-known Republican strategist who worked for all of those people, except for Trump, who you just named uh, over the years, including he worked, he worked with Roger Ailes. Uh, and he said to me, you know, one of the things that we're going to be puzzling over for years is looking at that line of Republican nominees, Bush, Bush, McCain, Romney, and who? And 
I felt that 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 question, the 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 who, how, like how did it get to this guy? Explain this because twenty five years from now, when people are in in grade schools are looking at the wall uh, and the portraits of the presidents above the chalkboard, there, Donald Trump's picture is going to still be there, and there's going to be a, a lot of explaining to do about how we got to that point because it looks like such an anomaly. And what my book tries to argue is that. Trump wasn't an anomaly in the Republican Party. He was yep. actually kind of the soul of it for the last 25, 30 years, starting with you know a guy like Buchanan, who ran in 92 on a lot of the ideas that Trump ended up running. Yeah. And if you think about it now, Romney is the anomaly. Mm-hmm. And, and basically, this has always been there. This has yes. always been. And, and the roots are in the tea party but it's also i mean you talk about limbaugh mm-hmm. about about how he got this i think you wrote a book about him didn't you <laughs> yes uh, uh um, or he was in the title at least well no it was about it was largely about this it was funny i wrote that in 95 it's called that rush limbaugh's a big fat idiot and other observations <laughs> uh and basically my thesis was that uh, he's spreading a lot of disinformation, and that's dangerous. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. I could have gripped from the book from, from your book it, because what it's true the the what Limbaugh called, as you well know, the, the four corners of deceit on his radio show. You know, academia, government, science, and the media. I mean, that was conditioning his audience for years and years not to trust authority and knowledge. And so we shouldn't at all be surprised by the time we get to 2020 and Trump says they're stealing this from you, the, the media, the Democratic Party, uh, it's, it's, it's all a big conspiracy. They had been hearing that kind of stuff for years. They'd been hearing it was a hoax from Trump for ever since he started running for president. And he uh, even before that, when he claimed that the, the Emmys were rigged because he'd never been nominated for an Emmy for The Apprentice. Yeah, uh, what I mean, they, just, they are. <laughs> well, he, I'm very bitter it's, it's, about that. I've only won five. <laughs> I deserve more. Well, the, the you know the, the the academy aside, I think Trump is was was speaking there to like this this sense that people who, who identified with conservative movement politics, who identified with the Republican Party, but not exclusively with the Republican Party felt like they were one presidential election away from losing their purchase on cultural, political and social power in this country. And they thought that for a variety of reasons, you know, and that, and that election was Obama. <laughs> yeah, that election was Obama. Right. Yeah. That's exactly that freaked right. them um, out, boy. That freaked them out. Well, yeah, it, it, it really did. I mean, you know, because, you know, you, you, you served with John McCain and McCain is an interesting figure in the book because what I report that hasn't really been out there before is the extent to which the McCain campaign was actually using the grievances and the anger out there in, in a way to in a way that they crafted Sarah Palin's words 
for her. Sarah Palin, when McCain chose her, she took a dark turn because the McCain people not only allowed her to do it, they wrote those words into her script, including the most famous line I think that she ever uttered during that campaign, that Obama was, quote, palling around with terrorists. That came from the McCain campaign headquarters. And I think that would surprise everyone because you don't think of Steve Schmidt, who was running that campaign, and you don't think of McCain stooping to that. But they did. Mm -hmm. But he did, right? (laughs) I mean, it's a complicated part of his legacy because for all that he was, you know, a war hero who, who, you know, stood up against the the Bush administration's use of terrorism um, and and, and somebody who ran as a maverick himself against the, the establishment Republican Party. It's a complicated legacy because ultimately the choice of Sarah Palin was on him and he he let this happen. It was sort of a Hail Mary. They thought they you know, they needed something, right? They needed something. Yeah. yeah. You forget that uh, William Crystal was like a big champion of hers. What I love most about the, the Bill Crystal story, um, and, and you might appreciate this, is... Let, let's explain who Bill Crystal is. Uh, oh, yeah, please. Yes. I think our audience knows. I actually had him as uh, one of my guests. Chief of Staff for uh, Dan Quayle, he... What was his, uh, the magazine he did? Um, the Weekly Standard. The Weekly Standard. And now he's a never Trumper, et cetera. But the Weekly Standard did a cruise to Alaska, <laughs> you know, fundraising tour, <laughs> a cruise. And they stopped and she, he was very impressed with her. And uh, he kind of suggested her, right? He did. Yes, he absolutely did. I think he regrets he, that, boy. Oh, he absolutely does. Um, but what he tells me in the book, um, which is, you know, I mean, hindsight is everything, right? He says that, you know, back then it wasn't as clear to him that she considered herself to come from a different part of the Republican Party, right? Like he, it, he, he described that lunch to me as, oh, this is Sarah Palin, the Republican governor, and she is inviting these, these Republicans she sees on Fox News uh, to come meet with her. And he didn't see it as uh, even given that what, what he should have known about her history uh, as somebody who took on establishment Republicans and beat them, like, like Governor Frank Murkowski, who she she killed off in a primary, uh, that she was capable of using her that that populist energy and turning it against their party, turning against John McCain, really. And what fascinated me about Crystal, uh, it's an interesting footnote that that people probably forget about his background is. He was the one involved in, remember the, the Murphy Brown versus Dan Quayle? Sure. Yeah, yeah. The, he was Dan Quayle's chief of staff, and uh, they made a big deal about her being a single mom or something and how it. Exactly. Because she decided to keep her baby instead of having an abortion, which evidently <laughs> right. uh, Quayle would have preferred. <laughs> <laughs> right. it, was, it, it wasn't the most logical of, of no, the no. to pick, right? Yeah. Um, but so, so, so Crystal's involved in that. And the speechwriter, uh, the speechwriters who are working on Dan Quayle's speech where, you know, he, he famously said of Murphy Brown and, and her Hollywood ilk, I wear your scorn like a badge of honor. Those speechwriters ended up working with Sarah Palin on her speech in 2008. So the, the, the book, what I hope, you know, you and other people take away from it is the way that there are these threads of, of Trumpism, which ultimately is like, it's a, it's a grievance based identity. Uh, this idea that there are people out there who think they're better than you, like, you know, famously saw Obama's 
saying, you know, those people who cling to their guns and religion and Hillary's deplorables, you know, it's that type of attitude that was there all along. Those were two mistakes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Don't make those kinds of mistakes. Uh, yeah, the deplorables, they just grabbed onto that. They and took wore that, of course, as a badge of honor. Oh, yeah, they make T-shirts out of it. Yeah. And so this goes back, uh, you know, Limbaugh, of course, you know, gets the Presidential Medal of Freedom. And what I like about <laughs> it is you write about that when you write about him getting that is that Trump, this is very Trump. Mm-hmm. He brings him to the State of the Union and announces it. And Limbaugh already knew it, but Limbaugh did an acting job, which is, oh, my God, I didn't realize I was going to get that, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you get it at the White House. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So anyway, <laughs> which is great. But but Trump, this is how Trump thinks. And there's, there's all kinds of things. Of course, like uh, bringing Juanita Broderick to the debates, this kind of shit, is, right. is that – Everybody knew Limbaugh was dying. He had mm-hmm. stage four lung cancer. And so he had him in the balcony and announced it and spent a lot of time praising him. And he just relished the idea that Democrats had to like, what do we do? The guy's dying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. And so, you know, it was win-win if they applauded for him. <laughs> you know, they weren't going to applaud for him. But then it was like, aha, he's Democrats are terrible. The man's dying and they won't applaud for him. But I mean, he, it's, it's reality television as the presidency. It's that that's what that's what he was good at. Now, here's the thing. I've, I've heard you interviewed and saying that you think that it's very possible they move past Trump and, and, and that this whole thing about him, just the grievance about the election, that people want to kind of move beyond that. I disagree with you. OK, I think that that's just Trump. I think he's kind of sui generis. I think. He's a, uh, you know, he's an autocrat. He's a, you know, he's a psychopath. Uh, I think they like that about him, that he holds grievances. Yeah. I think he's got a hold of this party. <laughs> That's why the Republican National Committee called that legitimate political discourse. There's also, this is about a charismatic leader, right? I don't see anybody else in the Republican field that holds a candle to him on that kind of thing. I mean, I think he, yeah, no, I agree. and he's like a classic, mm-hmm. isn't he? He is. He is. <laughs> no, I mean, it, it, it's true. He is. Uh, and, and I think, yeah, the question is um, how long he can, he, he kind of sticks around and holds, holds their attention. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I think I was, I was trying to leave it open to the possibility that what happens to Trump is that the base gets too far to the right of him. Uh, which which you've started to see in some ways. But I would agree with you that he is there is no Ron DeSantis and Mike Pence and these these other guys. They are not going to be able to replicate what Trump did. Don Jr. is not going to be. It's it's there's no replicating what what Trump does, because I don't think I mean, as we were just saying, he's such a showman. I mean, and that's why I focus on Limbaugh in the book so much um, and drawing a comparison to the way that he and Trump understood how to use media. Is that it's you, you don't you can't teach that and right both of them were masters in, in that field yeah and that's part of the reason he got the presidential medal of freedom because to me it it without Limbaugh there might not be a Trump I agree with that I, I agree with that one hundred percent and I think that's that's why um, I found it so revelatory 
in my conversations with Trump, and this is, I, I almost feel silly saying this, uh, that, that, that Donald Trump had something um, introspective and insightful to say about himself because he's not exactly the kind of guy who sits around thinking about everyone that's helped him and how he's formed this worldview um, that, that, that he's sharing with the rest of us. He's not a, a, an incredibly um, thoughtful guy when it comes to turning that lens on himself. But he said to me, Limbaugh gave him some advice during the transition in 2016, 15, 16, that stuck with him. And that was the transition, meaning the the presidential transition between Obama and Trump. So this is like, in other words, after he won. Yeah, it's like around Christmas after he had won. Okay, so that's 16. Right. Yeah. 16. So sorry, I said 15. But uh, yeah, so we're all still stunned that, you know, he's going to be the next president. <laughs> yes. <of the> <laughs> and I, I vividly remember in my, in my keyboard uh, at, at the New York Times, like typing in the words president elect Donald Trump. And it, I mean, that took some getting. Did you vomit? Even- <laughs> I mean, did, did you have to get a new computer? <laughs> I, did, I did not. No, I didn't vomit. But it, it, it was one of those things where. It was a remind, a daily reminder, because you know I would type those those words into my into my computer every day. Almost, I was writing a story. It was just a daily reminder of how surreal this was and what a historic yep. change we were undergoing as a country, and not always for the good. But I think that Trump was he the, the Limbaugh the Limbaugh comparison is so interesting because Limbaugh just wasn't somebody that Trump admired as a broadcaster, and uh, you know he was a neighbor in Palm Beach, and they went golfing together. <laughs> But but <laughs> some of the most formative adv- political advice he ever got came from Rush Limbaugh, I think, says all you need to know about uh, the way that he conducted his presidency, the way he viewed his presidency. What was the advice? What um, was the, advice? the advice was to Lim- from Limbaugh, don't ever cut deals with Democrats because and it's not the not the actual advice itself. That's so interesting. It's the reason Limbaugh said, because the Democrats and the left will never give you credit for it. They will always hate you. And if you try to appease them, it will never work. And so productive. I think it's exactly right. Oh, man. <laughs> you know, it makes me. God, that's a patriot. Right. So that's the, I mean, and then look at Trump's presidency. Did, did With the exception of maybe attempting to cut a deal on on getting um, some type of immigration reform done for the kids who, who came here uh, when they were really young. Um, yeah, he I, didn't even do that. I mean, he didn't do that. They didn't even do that. Yeah. They, they didn't, yeah. <laughs> he didn't even get an infrastructure bill. No. Which is hilarious because, you know, he's the builder, right? Right. <laughs> and everyone wanted it. We, we all wanted it. I couldn't yeah, believe right. that we couldn't do it. Every week was infrastructure week. Remember? And and mm-hmm. just <laughs> no one didn't want infrastructure. <laughs> and he still couldn't do it. It's amazing how awful this guy was um, in in so many different ways. So let's uh, talk about some of the assholes here that you in the book. Uh, which, which ones? I mean, <laughs> uh, Bannon, uh, Glenn Beck. Mm. You you pick them. I mean, there's a Cruz. <laughs> you know uh, who you want to talk about? Uh, you know Roger Stone. All these people are just part of this story. Yeah, I think Bannon is an interesting one, right? Because he wasn't always there with Trump. And I get into this story in 2000. It's the summer of 2010, and uh, it's kind of a, a, an overlooked episode in the creation of Trump's political identity. 
and his understanding of what worked with his voters. But the the Ground Zero mosque episode back in 2010 was a huge controversy, right? It it wasn't a mosque, but it was an Islamic cultural center, much like a a JCC or a YMCA, except for it was going to be run by Muslims. I remember that it was after 9-11 and this guy wanted to build a like a cultural center, right? You know, a mm-hmm. place like a, yeah, yeah, like a JCC, except for Muslims. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. And, and you know, you would have thought. An MCC. Exactly. <laughs> but you would have thought that they were erecting a monument to bin Laden on ground zero. Well, they shouldn't have called it uh, the bin Laden community center, but. Right. <laughs> that's a, but that's that was a mistake. To your question, like when did they learn or how did they learn to distort this stuff and lie about it is that's the, 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 the construction of it in the right wing media as, as a mosque was like entirely fitting with what was happening in on, on the airwaves of Fox News and on Rush Limbaugh's show. The idea was so provocative and so outlandish and so inflaming that it became too good to, to fact check, too good to to say. Well, actually, no. There's there's a little bit more nuance here. That it, because it played out in the right wing media, that's how people like Trump saw it. Because what what did he do most of most of the day? He watched television. Well, what was interesting is he took this. I mean, obviously, I wrote Rush Limbaugh's a big fat idiot and other observations, and I wrote lies and lying liars who tell them a fair and balanced look the right. So I was kind of warning about this and i was very Mm -hmm. cognizant of they were just lying 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 but there's a difference between that and the president lying all the time (laughs) right and then lying about the lies right like what are you talking about no i don't i I haven't been golfing as much as uh, more than obama yeah i mean one of my favorite lies uh, that he does is the one where he, he talked about injecting disinfectant <laughs> to you and uh in the debate with uh, biden he goes i was being sarcastic and you know it <laughs> it's like no you weren't well, play that back you know you were not being sarcastic well for a while he was still denying that it was him on the access hollywood tape he said there's no proof that that's actually my voice it's like this is this is when he was still president like <laughs> and it's pretty clear who's, who's speaking on the tape the lies, this guy it just, you know, from day one, of course, uh, day one was I had the biggest inaugural. <laughs> like it was like, and then, and that's when uh, Kelly, Kellyanne uh, Conway said there are alternative facts, which is mm-hmm. fabulous. Fabulous. Right. Thank you very much. There, we, we could have been the title of my book too. Because it just sums up so perfectly what's, what's happened to the public. <laughs> I mean, that's, uh, it's amazing, isn't it? And it's mm-hmm. so dangerous. And by the way, you, when you say that kids will look up and see Donald Trump's picture, mm-hmm. uh, the president, they'll see Donald Trump, then they'll see Biden, and then they'll see Donald Trump again, <laughs> and he'll still be president when these kids are <laughs> in school. <laughs> because you know, he's just becoming ill. That's it. It's over. It'll be a dictatorship. I mean, it'll be an authoritarian regime. It'll, we will not have a democratic election again. I mean, every it'll be like Hungary or something like that, and it'll all be fraud and you know. Yeah, well, that's that's the thing. It's like the seeds for the lying, as as uh, as you well know. It, a lot of it starts with voter fraud, right? This idea that I think Republicans couldn't come to terms with the fact that they were losing on their ideas. Yeah, well, you have Ailes saying to Romney, 
Mm-hmm. That they, oh, yeah. I love that scene. That's amazing. Uh, Ailes is saying to Romney, well, they stole it. They cheat. They cheat. Mm-hmm. Right. And if you watch Fox, I mean, it's it's fine because I, I used to describe that as like that scene in Citizen Kane where it, you know he's he's losing the governor's race. And the guys at the uh, running the press room at one of his papers had it all laid out. You know, Kane wins, and then when they figure out he's not going to win, they ch- they scramble the letters and they change it to Kane loses. Fraud at polls. Uh, it's it's just yeah. this, this instinct that they have to deny that the, that the Republican Party has to deny that their ideas and their leaders are not representative of. The majority of the people, because remember, this is the party that told itself it was a majority, whether it was Richard Nixon's silent majority or or Ralph Reed's moral majority. They really do talk themselves into this. And you know, you asked about about Bannon. Um, one of the interesting things about Bannon is, you know, when when you get him uh, talking about Trump in candid moments, like he he is well aware and very keen an observer of Trump's flaws and his recklessness. And and one of the things he said to me was Trump is the guy who believes the the lie as soon as it comes out of his mouth. Now, of course, he then added a dig to Bill Clinton and said, you know, he's kind of like Bill Clinton. He's 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 the guy that could pass the lie detector test. And I think that that's really true. It's it's. A capacity that I don't have, that that, I, that I'm sure you don't have, that most of us don't have. But he is just when I lie, I'm aware of it. Right, and he and I think he's not. Actually, I was just lying. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that was not great. <laughs> As a joke, yeah, it was okay. You laughed, so that counts. Yeah. yeah, thank you, thank you for that. <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, I mean, it just is. Uh, Mind-boggling. He just lies all the time, and they. What what percentage of the uh, self-identified Republicans in this country believe the election was stolen? Oh, it's uh, depending on the poll. It's 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 in the way they ask the question. It's it's you know half to two thirds uh, <laughs> who believe that Biden isn't legitimate, and they have this extraordinary capacity. And this isn't exactly lying, but it's this that's in the same vein because it's this denial of reality and this ability to whitewash and look past the, the ugly things that that Trump did. January 6th is the ultimate example of it. You have Kevin McCarthy and all these folks in the immediate aftermath, the weeks after January 6th, who are saying that Trump is responsible. He should be censured. Then they see that that because in part because Trump is lying to his base and saying, no, this wasn't, these were interlopers. These were, this, this was Antifa. This wasn't really our people. And Black Lives Matters uh, people were there <laughs> and who, who really did a good job of hiding their race. There was like one guy, I think, that they found who had been arrested for his association, like an anarchist leftist protest. One guy in the Capitol. And then, that, you know, it, it, it becomes, uh, no, this is all an Antifa false flag operation. But and that's the guy who smeared his feces on the wall. Right. Or, or the uh, <laughs> uh, blood on the statue of Zachary. Jesus Taylor, right? like Christ. These were, like these were all patriots. Good people who were just on a tour. Right. Remember, they were just they stayed. Yeah, you'd, the think it, you'd think it was just a, a regular tourist visit. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> the storming of the Bastille was just a uh, tourist visit to the best. <laughs> Another false flag, right? Yeah, but but that's the, that's what I try to get at is the heart of the book is is how this party became how how it allowed itself to get so detached from reality to to deny the obvious, to accept the demonstrably false as truth. 
And the, a lot of that starts with the, with the right-wing media from Limbaugh to Ailes. But you never had a president who was as willing to lie about everything. He, he lied about how much he weighed and how tall he was and how healthy he well, was. Well, everyone does that. Just, Come on. <laughs> saying he was the most. <laughs> it was probably true. Come on. That's like the least of it. I mean, <laughs> that's, uh, you know, I think uh, that the election was stolen is worse than lying about your weight. For example, I'm, one, I'm 160. <laughs> so am I. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's just, uh, it, it's, uh, it's so friggin' disturbing that, and, and I worry, uh, of course, of course, about voter suppression. Remember uh, Hillary won the popular vote by about 3 million votes, right? So oh, yes, yes. Trump does like, okay, he points his commission. <laughs> yes, the Blue Ribbon Voter Fraud Commission. Kobach, is that the guy uh, from Kansas? And yep. so they found nothing, nothing, no fraud, nothing. <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, they're still finding nothing. Yeah, and they still find nothing. And how these people, well, what am I saying? How these people believe this shit, they just do. Oh, man. Okay, more assholes. Um, <laughs> uh, let's see. Who am I? Some, uh, you know, Glenn Beck becomes is kind of he actually what, what I like about Glenn, uh, the Glenn Beck thing is that Ailes puts him on mm -hmm. and then Glenn Beck gets too popular, too crazy and too crazy. And at one point, Ailes sees some kind of, you know, who the most influential right wing you know what's what, what was what was the was there was a list that like someone had published some some publication it's i think it was the independent in britain published a list of the most influential conservatives and this guy interviewing roger ailes says well you know uh a couple ticks above you on this this list is uh, is glenn beck and and ailes scoffs glenn's not a conservative and i the reason i put that in the book is because that's that's trump right like trump is not conservative he, like Beck he is is a performer he is somebody who he's a broadcaster who knows what his audience wants but but what I loved about it was he just couldn't stand the idea that Glenn Beck was someone thought Glenn Beck was more important than him yes that is absolutely and that's why <laughs> he ended up hating Donald Trump um because you know as, as long as Roger Ailes had been running Fox his idea for what he sh for the role he should be performing as head of the network was that he was going to drag these Republicans over the finish line and elect them president, right? They wouldn't be able to do it themselves. There's this, this great scene that I have in there where Ailes is, you know, this is years before Fox News and he's George H.W. Bush's debate coach or one of them. And he's, he's getting in H.W.'s face. This is the president of the United States at the time. And it's like, you have to talk. He's talking about how to debate Bill Clinton, coaching him on that. He says, you have to get in that fat fuck's face and you have to tell him. Da, 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 da. I mean, and that's the thing is, 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 and I open the book with this scene that just shows you how that model of, of Republican politics was just being smashed because the Bush family, you know, the generations of public service, you know, they, they use their wealth and their privilege and their power to give back to their country. And that's why I opened the book with the scene of Sarah Palin and George Bush meeting for the first time. They're on Air Force One, or George Bush is on Air Force One. He's Sarah Palin's governor. This is a few weeks before she's selected vice president. Neither of them. This is W, knows, of course. W. Yeah. Neither of them knows that, that McCain's about to pick her. 
and he hardly knows who she is. He doesn't even know how to pronounce her last name. And in four weeks, she's going to be a bigger star in the Republican Party than he is. We're going to take a uh, quick break. We'll be right back with Jeremy Peters of The New York Times. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Okay, so I wanted to ask you about the Supreme Court. Was it Trump's idea or was it one of his advisors' idea to say, I'm just going to only choose... Supreme Court nominees that were recommended by the Federalist Society and the Heritage Foundation? I think because he was so utterly transactional, he was talked into this idea. Because it's a brilliant idea. I mean, it, that won the election, right? It, it absolutely won the election. Everything won the election. It was so close. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, right. It was, it was a number of factors that I, you don't win the election if, without the religious right. And in order to get the, the religious right on board with a guy who has as, you know, as long a record as Trump does of being completely offensive to anything religious, it, he, he needed to do a few things. One of those was to ensure them that he wasn't going to be like the Bushes and appoint liberal Supreme Court justices, which both Bushes, well, I mean, Roberts isn't exactly a liberal, but conservative, a lot of conservatives would say he's not a conservative either. And uh, the other one was appointing Mike Pence as, as sure. his vice presidential nominee. And that really got them in line. And so I, it, it was I think it surprised a lot of evangelicals, at least the, the evangelical leadership in the party, that their voters were fine with being so transactional. Well, well, I mean, look what they got. I mean, they're, the biggest they thing is to get rid of Roe v. Wade, and they're going to do that. They're going to get it. That, that's why the subtitle is, you know, Republicans lost their party and got everything they ever wanted, because that's how you look past January 6th. That's how you adopt a worldview that is is rooted in, in delusion and in denial of reality that's inconvenient to you, because you can say, well... He at least we're we're saving babies, uh, and the people I talk to. That's I'm not I'm not I'm not belittling that. That's what they say. It's it really is a bargain that was worth making as far as they're concerned. And the other bargain is the corporate uh, Republicans, the establishment mm-hmm. Republicans. The Supreme Court makes it you know harder for labor unions to organize. Right? You know, it's all these uh, pro corporate. The decisions that they make. So that was part of their transaction, too. They were uh, most of these people probably don't like Trump, but True. that's the deal. And w- one of the things that does worry me about it, all this, and I think it worries everybody else, is uh, my former colleagues, uh, Republican colleagues, uh, I do 
text them every once in a while. They uh, are afraid to go against Trump, but they know who he is and what he is. But they're afraid because the Republican Party base is Trump's base. Yes. Or is his Trump people. So they're they're afraid. And I've had, you know, after some teeth pulling, I've had, I've had um, a number of my colleagues go like, look, if I say the election wasn't stolen, then I will lose my primary and you'll get a bigger nut. <laughs> they don't consider themselves nuts. You'll get a nut. Right. Well, look at the woman, um, uh, Nancy Mace, uh, who oh my dared God. to speak the truth <laughs> and uh, on, on January 6th and blamed Trump and and Trump endorsed her opponent in the primary. And now she's groveling outside Trump Tower, filming an, a, a video on her iPhone saying how she's the, Trump's biggest supporter. I mean, that's it's you're I'm glad you brought that up. Your, you know, your private conversations with these Republican senators, because that's what I hear, too. That's what they all say. They just they will lose their primary because they're afraid. I mean, they won't say that they're afraid of their voters, but like that's that's the truth. The reality is they are afraid of their voters. I think it's actually it's not just that they're afraid. It's that they don't understand their voters, because I think if, if you're somebody like Nancy Mace, uh, to think that that's going to do the trick with Trump voters to go and stand in front of Trump Tower and pledge your loyalty to him uh, on your iPhone like uh, that. What who's going to be convinced to vote for you because of that? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's there's also the stupidity factor yes. that you can't discount. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I mean, they might go, oh, I see. She's, for, uh, you know, they'll just watch that thing and go, oh, great. I, I didn't know that. She's really pro-Trump. I yeah, don't know. Uh, they, they could. I mean, well, the, the thing, you know, is is Trump's endorsement. And this is an interesting point. It's an interesting distinction that I think gets lost on a lot of people about the, the, the real power that Trump has over these Republicans in office. It's not so much the endorsement as it is the attacks that he decides to wage, right? So if he goes after you, that's when you're in trouble. That's what Republican, you know, Lil Marco, Lion Ted. Uh, and I think to, to your point earlier about how he still is, is likely to have a hold on this party for a long time. And I don't disagree with you because um, I don't think that there's anyone else who's going to come along that can do what he can do. He has so bullied these other, these Republican senators um, so they're, they're so afraid of what will happen to them um, if he starts taunting them because they've seen it happen to their colleagues. I mean, you're, some of your former colleagues, you know, I mean, whether it's Jeff Flake or Bob Corker, you know, these guys that he, he ran out of office because he started antagonizing them. And that speaks to the cultural change in the Republican Party, or at least the acceptance now of this, this maybe it's not a change at all, but it's just that they're willing to do it in the open where the ridicule, the mean spiritedness of it all is, is sport for a lot of these people. And they, and they like it. And it's a reason they vote for him. You know, one of your, the people you write about is, is Sean Hannity and just the shameless lying. He knows what he's doing, right? He knows exactly what he's doing. Yeah. And uh, you just wonder like, wow. What is that? What's your self, uh, you know, your self-image? I can't be successful unless I just spread lies and poison. 
Well, I think what they've done is they've talked themselves because the Democratic Party um, and certain Democratic politicians have given them uh, quite a caricature to run with uh, and and proposed a lot of policies that are just incredibly unpopular and, and nonsensical, that they are able to tell themselves that the left is so awful um, that we can put, you know, that they, they hate the left hates us so much and the left will so destroy this country because they, you know, they exaggerate and they embellish and they, they make it sound as if like Ilhan Omar is is the real speaker of the House. When like, I don't know the last time a, you know, a backbench congresswoman has, has received so much national attention in the conservative media, but they do a very people like Hannity do a very good job of exaggerating the mistakes that Democratic politicians make and the ill-advised policies that, that they end up getting backed into a corner over. Uh, and that's that's easier than having to defend Trump, which, of course, they're perfectly happy to do. Yeah. Ugh. <laughs> it's depressing. <laughs> so are you worried? I mean, are you worried that uh, it's all over democracy and we're, we're screwed? I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to diminish like this, the seriousness of the of the threats that like we face. I'm I'm just an optimistic person by nature, and I think that there's yeah, that's a, know, there's a reason. That, <laughs> probably, maybe I'm the, maybe I'm not old enough. Uh, but I uh, I I think that like you know, look, voters looked at Trump's record in t- 2020, and they made a choice. And you could say that they very narrowly made that choice, even though the you know what the popular vote says one thing, but the forty thousand votes in you know a handful of states uh, yep. really shows you the, the closeness of this. Well, it shows you how the electoral college is so screwy. Completely, um, but I think that you are right when you know you said that that Trump has a real shot at this again. And people, you know, they asked me uh, a lot of times because when I spoke to him for this book, um, the question of of what he's going to do in 2024 is, is always, always there lingering. Um, even though I never asked it directly, I could tell over the course of our interviews as he is, he, he's, he was getting angrier and angrier and more and more detached from reality that he is running to avenge what he sees as this, you know, this grave injustice uh, carried out against him. And he wants this back. You know, and he's going to tell people, this is your chance to get your country back. And as we know, and as I, as I write in the book, I think that phrase is on the first page of my book, that these conservatives who, the, over the course of American history, at least, you know, the, the second half of the 20th century and this part of the 21st century so far, have been galvanized by that sentiment, this idea that their, their country is slipping away from them. And that's just how the stop the steal stuff might be Trump's ace in the hole because it, he's he's saying to them like they stole this from me but they also stole it from you let's take it back it also is just white people <laughs> uh worried about losing their status you know their cultural status that's part of what this is tapping into right Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, and, and one of the things that um, I mean, yes. And as you as you correctly pointed out, like that's why the Obama election, what, what so outraged a lot of these these voters who became Tea Party people, once they saw 
that Obama was, and I mean, you were there for this. Once they saw that Obama was going to pass this 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 universal health care law, um, once they saw that it, well, it wasn't they, universal, it's, but but it true, was okay, expanding, yeah, yeah. Okay, the ACA, yeah. um, right? You know what they 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 started to see him as the right wing caricature that he's this this socialist, right? Who's who's fundamentally changing the character of the country, and. That was one thing, like in theory, to hear from from people like McCain on the campaign trail. But you know, they they latch onto this idea that a that a, a law expanding healthcare access is somehow like a socialist takeover of the country, in part because they were told this by a very well financed uh, right wing political operation. Yeah, and it, what happened was is that, of course, uh, Trump said that he's going to replace Obamacare with something terrific, and <laughs> and then. I thought like, oh, well, okay, he wins. And I'm guessing, well, I guess the Cato Institute and, you know, American Enterprise Institute and the Heritage Foundation must have put together kind of a market-based thing, the substitute. And what they came up with was so horrible. It, it was like 23 million Americans would have lost coverage. Mm-hmm. It, it was so awful. And it went down, thank, thank God, for McCain's thumb down. And then um, remember what Trump said? He said, who knew healthcare was so complicated? <laughs> and the answer is everybody, you asshole. Well, you who knew idiot. the economy was so complicated? Who knew managing a pandemic could be so complicated? And that's ultimately, you know, when you talk to people, as, as I did for this book, they, that was the, the people who were honest about his leadership could see that he was incapable of any type of real leadership, especially when it all came home uh, with with a pandemic, a racial reckoning, um, and an economic collapse. It's just not something he was ever interested in doing or built for. Oh, no, no. I mean, the guy watched TV, watched Fox, can't read. I mean, can read, I think, but he doesn't read. And (laughs) (laughs) he wanted all his briefings oral, you know, and then would get impatient. If they yeah. were long, and I mean, we look at that and think like, "Wow, that guy is so ill-suited." And voters and, and a lot of voters judged him to be completely ill-qualified to be the president of the United States. But I think a lot of people still look at that and they're like, "Oh, he's you know, he's not a politician, right?" <laughs> That's it's this like authenticity. Oh yeah, I mean, if you look, looked at those Republican debates and you know, in sixteen. Basically, all of them were politicians, and they talked in talking points, and Trump just sounded like a a human being, an odd human being, an awful human being, but nevertheless, you know, interesting. I mean, well, an insult, yeah, is how I often saw him. He was he could be he could be withering and quite funny in in his in his insults and his little petty slights. Yeah, Uh, your wife is ugly. Yeah, right. I mean, it's, it's <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Yay, we like him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that's, I mean, and I think one of the most, the, the biggest revelations that I had in my reporting of this book was the tolerance, not just the, the, the tolerance generally for that type of, of ugliness and, and, and nastiness and personal vendetta. It was that the evangelical crowd told themselves that they were not only okay with it, but that a lot of them liked it. And these guys like Pete Weiner, who's a former Bush speechwriter, who will no longer call himself evangelical uh, because of the association with, with uh, you know, the Trump evangelicals, 
has a theory that you know that that, that kind of mean spiritedness was always running under the surface um, in, in in evangelical crowds because of just the the othering that happens uh, in a lot of evangelical churches and uh, that people like they laugh. I mean, this is the, what people forget, and I try to get into this in the book is that when the day that Trump insulted John McCain as a, not a war hero because he'd been captured. Right. I thought that was the end. I thought it was the end. <laughs> I thought that was the end of him. <laughs> Everybody did. But you know what? Like, had we been listening, I'm, I'm, I'm guilty as you are. Had we been carefully watch, listening and, and paying attention there, he spoke those words in front of an evangelical audience in Iowa, and the audience laughed. No. Huh. Yeah, well, they got their they got their court, and um, it uh, uh, <laughs> they got everything they ever wanted. Right? That's uh, yes, the subtitle of the book. Mm-hmm. But let's uh, <laughs> in very good. Yes, <laughs> yeah, you know how to sell books. Okay, uh, the name of the book title title of the book. Let's call it title Insurgency. Subtitle: How Republicans Lost Their Party. And got everything they ever wanted. Jeremy, uh, thank you. <laughs> well, thanks for having me. I thought it was a great conversation. I was okay. <laughs> I held up my end. I know that. <laughs> this was fun. Thank you. And and uh, really recommend the book uh, very highly. Thank you. Well, I, I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV. There seemed to be an endless supply of shows that delivered entertainment for us, but trauma for children. I'm Misha Brown, the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each week on The Big Flop, comedians join me to chronicle the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? We recently looked behind the scenes of what was really going on at Abby Lee Miller's dance studio. Abby's biggest misstep wasn't screaming nonsensical catchphrases or throwing chairs on television, but instead, she was choreographing financial fraud in plain sight. Join me to break down all the wild details of Abby Lee Miller's story. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuel, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, 
once upon a beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.